This is Fort St. David's Episode 8, Preludium. Right, this is the eighth episode. We haven't done one in a month and a half, and uh, summer's here, and the time is right for playing podcasts from yours truly, Eric Vader, and all of us here. Um, the chapter that I'm going to read today is one of a number of chapters that are sort of non-sequential, non-numbered chapters sprinkled throughout the novel, and uh, they all cleverly have titles that are from musical notation. This one is called Preludium, and it's just that. It's a prelude, and it's also one of my favorite chapters from the whole book, and I'm kind of excited to read it, and it's uh, definitely has a very summer vibe which as the days get warmer and brighter and less rainy, I think all of us here can appreciate. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, these podcasts, because of the way that I, I do them with Alex and I, I send them to him and then he uploads them, I always want to like give you this like breaking news or whatever, but I'm always recording them and then they kind of come out later. So I could tell you about a reading that I'm giving this weekend, but uh, you could always just check the website if uh, you want more up-to-date information. That's the dailymiltonian.wordpress.com, but you probably knew that already. So let's just jump into this. Um, I think what I'm going to do is sort of break up, this is a very long chapter, so I'm going to break it up over the course of two or three episodes. Uh, we'll see. So for now, I'm starting. This is page 75, Preludium. 
young girls and the destruction they hold in store for young boys. Haha, <laughs> now there's a topic. My own Patrick history in the realm of girls started relatively late. Right after I ran away from home, the summer after my junior year, as a boy I was just a sore loser from Delaware. I held no stock in the coveted halls of cool, nor fashion, nor friends. I spent most of my time with books, computers, comics, and my bicycle. That was all I had. My summers were spent digging around in creeks, riding the bike, getting beat up by heavy metal Johnny, collecting comic books, taking the bus into Wilmington to sit all day in the air-conditioned library. The most action I saw in those days was the occasional pretty jumping off the diving board at the local swim club as I coasted by on my bicycle, wishing I could be a part of it all. Books, computers, comics, the bicycle. That was all I had. There were girls in my neighborhood, sure. I knew where they lived, and my heart would thump in my chest as I passed their houses, perhaps walking home in the cold dusk with a bundle of newly purchased comics under my arm, the streets beginning to get dark and the street lamps lighting up one by one down the big stretching hill, the moonlight breaking, at throughout, breaking through the faraway clouds and making the frost on the lawns glitter like precious jewels. And in the houses, I could see the buzzing flicker of the television, smell the warmth of the fuming chimney, and maybe imagine the hot dinner being removed from the oven. And upstairs, I would see that little yellow light go on, and I knew that she was in there. Perhaps I would see her silhouette glide past the window, that perfect yellow square of warm light, total opposite to the cold reality outside where I existed. Perhaps she would look down, and she would see me out there trudging along in this chilly streets. I had a hugely active and romantic imagination, and I would dream reverently of the poems read in these rooms, the scribbled journals of sad, perfect confessions, dripping with longing, the long hours of staring at the ceiling and hoping for so much more. In a way, these thoughts alone kept me content. It was a strange and quiet childhood, one that consisted of waiting, listening, looking, watching, observing, more listening, and above all, waiting. I waited. I was never anxious. I merely waited. A weekend included a Friday night spent reading and watching television that ended with me laying on the bed with the cat and listening to the sounds of the distant highway outside the window. A Saturday spent riding the bike all day and then at night repeating the same previous night's performance, and ditto for Sunday. The phone never rang, and in those years there was no excitement when it did. At school, the hallways were a sea of sound and voices that had nothing to do with me. It was more television, those conversations, those boys and girls that stopped at lockers and made plans. The words they exchanged were a different world, a world behind a screen. I felt no envy, because I didn't know how. It simply didn't have anything to do with me. I didn't desire anything because I hadn't tasted anything. There's no need for things you haven't tried. Only junkies want junk. And only those who have had relationships desire relations. I watched, listened, and waited. Time meant nothing. Around the beginning of my junior year, I stole a 2400 baud modem from the computer room at school and a gangly kid with a runny nose named Jared 
gave me a list of some numbers to connect to. He'd use the numbers to download and upload pirated computer games. For my birthday, I had upgraded the Commodore 64 to a 386-33MHz PC with EGA 16 color graphics, and I could feel the tilt of the future arching smoothly beneath its keys. Now I was playing with power. The modem connected me to other worlds, other kids' homes who had their own phone lines and could run a BBS 24 hours a day. Kids whose parents didn't take away the modem, as my mother often did, when the phone bill hit astronomical levels. Still, I persevered, poking slowly but surely into these other worlds where strange young men and women posted messages on BBSs, Foxfire, World War IV were the operating systems of choice. Young people with ideas and goals far removed from the ones I overheard in the hallway and locker room conversations at school. I began to make contacts. All of this was before the advent of the internet. These were the halcyon days of the BBS. You were lucky if you had Prodigy. There were no huge storehouses of information, no pop-up ads, no chat rooms, no you've got mail. <laughs> Even that is sort of, uh, it's funny saying you got mail. I think, I wonder if anybody, uh, you know, under the age of 30 even remembers that. Maybe they do. Uh, it was just hacks and pirated software. During that winter, I came into contact with a kid named Nathan Kowalski, who ran a BBS from somewhere in Maryland. Nathan would send me crazy sets of documents through the mail, entailing small chump change money tricks, like getting coins from payphones. Getting coins to come out of payphones and ways to make monitors blow up with viruses. Very funny stuff. As summer inched closer, my life at home became messier. I was having trouble with my mother. I wasn't going to get a car, and I didn't even have, even want to, and didn't even want to spend another year in high school. What did the future hold for me? I had no ties to Delaware. It meant nothing to me. Nathan suggested I come up to Maryland and stay with him for a few weeks, just to get out of town, figure things out. I'd been saving money all through high school, and I'd accumulated a pretty decent sum of money. Comic books in the early 90s were not much of an expense at all. And so, having graduated my junior year of high school, I packed my bags, wrote my mother a goodbye note, and took the bus to downtown Wilmington, where I boarded the next bus to Baltimore. I'd never done anything like this before. It didn't even seem exciting. It happened as if on autopilot. It just happened. Nate lived in Cranberry, about 45 minutes south of Baltimore. Nate and I didn't have much in common except for books and computers, but back then this was enough. It was something, and we got along just fine. He set me up with a sleeping bag and blankets, and I lived in a little shed in the backyard that his parents never used. I felt crazy and free, like a new chapter was opening up in my life, the first real tangible thing, the scent of unlimited possibility. Lying on my back in the shed, the smell of soil and night grass and the sounds of crickets and frogs outside, a dewy dampness settling on my forehead, I felt strange things opening up within me, in the night, like the white flowers that bloom only when the sun goes down. I felt like I was growing up. During the day, Nate and I would play around on his computer, usually extorting money from kids who read BBSs, by breaking in through the back secretly changing their passwords, and then making a clean 20 bucks a pop when they called our, quote, BBS repair clinic by changing the password back. 
It was a smooth operation. Other days, we'd walk through the sweltering summer afternoons out to the Cranberry Mall to play the new Street Fighter II Turbo machine and watch the pretty girls meander by with their ice cream cones and short skirts. The girls were wonderful to look at, and in my new free world I was slowly getting the guts to talk to one. I had never spoken to girls before. They existed, as I said, behind the television screen that separated myself from the rest of the world. Now things were changing. I had achieved independence. I had made the first real decision of my life ever. I had run away from home. I had taken my life into my own hands. I had shown myself that if you wanted something in life, you just went out and got it. If things weren't working out, you could just leave and go find something else. It was, it was as if pretty soon there would be nothing left to hold me back, and I wanted more, even more. I wanted a complete transformation, to shed my skin and to become utterly reborn anew. I was working on it, and my Street Fighter II turbo skills were becoming damn impressive. Nate's neighborhood was built around a valley. The newly built houses with their shiny, silent cars parked in the driveways and the neatly cut lawns coiled up in succeeding spirals around the dark and damp valley below. The bottom was filled with murky swamps, spooky patches of woods, and hither and thither the occasional strange building, presumably businesses. In the soft summer nights, we would trek down into it, enjoying the cool air that came off the ponds and swatting off mosquitoes. Often while walking down one of the winding streets that led to the bottom, we would catch fleeting glimpses of, glimpse of lights. We would catch, sorry, we would catch the fleeting glimpse of lights down in the valley. That usually meant kids. So we would head down further and try to carefully listen for the hushed voices, the occasional staccato burst of laughter, or perhaps even catch a whiff of cigarette or marijuana smoke floating up from the depths of that thick night air. How magic those nights were! The crickets, the faint and distant smell of the marsh, the immense darkness of the trees, the twinkling stars far above in the night sky, and the thick and warm air, everything conspiring together to create that grand, sorcerous feeling, that feeling of youth and summer nights stuffed to the brim with endless possibility, the feeling that at any moment one could punch through the thick, summary reality, and to find oneself somewhere else. Towards the bottom of the valley, secluded but in a ring of dark trees, was an old office building, abandoned some time before the new houses came. There was still a faded old coke machine that worked, its red plastic light illuminating, illuminating, illuming faintly in the darkness, and a modest-sized parking lot with a lone street lamp that buzzed and flickered, along with the night insects, the air humming with bugs and humidity, the sounds and wavelengths of voices, voices of young boys and girls, the brave new world that you'll really only see a few times in your life, barely glimpse out of the corner of your eye and spend the rest of your life trying to see once more, just one more time, the currents of electricity you can feel flowing through your young veins, shocking you over and over again, Maybe it's a chance view at a fiery horizon, sinking over distant plateaus. Or maybe it's an Eidolon, glimpsed in the thick and gluey blue dusk at that perfect soft hour when the air is charged with chance. It's that glimpse 
where you can see the stars, the real stars, not the firmament above, but in the atmosphere, right in front of your face, on the tip of your nose, even. Standing there by the faint plastic light of the Coca-Cola machine, my eyes on her, watching her mouth as she speaks, the flickering streetlights splashing dances over her face, being handed my first cigarette ever, and having the process of smoking it being explained to me, feeling the subtle sting of a summer mosquito on my, so my thigh, and my hand slapping down right below my shorts, but it's too late, I'm already bitten. Standing there and hearing the voices and the talk and the ideas and the thoughts of young people, young people who aren't too different from myself, meaning I'm not alone, actually know I'm actually a part of something else, something new and something different, knowing that standing there, I've been waiting for this all my life. This is what all the waiting and looking and listening and waiting is all about. This is what I've waited for, to stand there in all that muggy warmth and night and stars and possibility and promise, standing and waiting and believing, to know that this is what it all came down to. It was at the conclusion of one of those unbearably magic nights, those white nights, as Dostoevsky or Hampson would have it, when Will led me to Jen. I was in Nate's house, fooling around on the computer as the a.m. approached and the time to retire to the loamy shed drew near, and Nate was downstairs, speaking to Will on the telephone, flummoxed with my hopeless prospects of saving Britannia from impending doom in Ultima Five, I shut off the computer and softly padded down the carpeted stairs and into the living room, where Nate was reclining on the couch with a glass of soda, speaking on the phone, his eyes on the latest Bjork video, Human Emotions, on the television. Stumped as to what advice to give his friend Will, Nate passed the phone off to me. Will, who I had met at the mall only once, was having problems with his girlfriend. Really bad problems. He was considering, considering giving her a black rose. This was meant to be symbolic. He made it clear. Having no previous relations with girls, I listened intently, actually quite interested in the problems Will was having. Having problems with a girl sounded like a very new and interesting prospect, actually. In my life, I was changing everything, and, as I said, fixing up all the problems, filling in the huge gaping spaces with anything I could find. I was learning to speak, and I was finding out that you could ask things and receive answers. You could ask pretty much anything if you wanted. I asked Will if his girlfriend, or rather soon-to-be ex-girlfriend, had any friends. You know, I mean any friends who were girls and, well, single. I couldn't believe I could just ask someone this question. Simple as it may seem, it was a benchmark for me. To just go out and ask someone something like this. Will said that he would ask her if she did. It was that simple. Really? The next afternoon, Will called back, and when Nate handed me the phone, I remembered our conversation from the night before, and there was a funny new feeling in my stomach. Things were going to happen. That's what the feeling said to me. Will said that he had a number for me. A girl that is girlfriend. She'll be next by tomorrow, most likely. A girl named Jen. Jen, yes. He had met her, and, well, yeah, she's pretty cute. Sure, yes. Yeah, so probably, you probably would have a chance to meet her. But, Dave, listen, you gotta understand, she is crazy. And I mean really over the rainbow crazy. She's nuts. She's lost it. I mean, she does drugs. Drugs! I'd only been drunk, well, almost drunk, once or twice in my life. 
I'd smoked my first cigarette a few days ago, and I had never done drugs or even really been around them. I didn't know much about drugs. Drugs? I knew that in my hometown there were some parents who did cocaine. Walking around at night, you'd see someone in their car, and if you looked closely, you saw what they were doing. It was embarrassing to catch them doing it. Drugs were what people in movies did, and in real life, it's what old and lonely people did. Bored people. I knew there were other drugs, too. But really, I hadn't been exposed to much of anything at all. It was something that wasn't good for me. That's all I knew. But I was changing things, as I have said. Everything was becoming different. There weren't any rules anymore. I wrote down the number Will gave me, carefully folded it, and slipped it safely into my wallet. After I hung up the phone, I felt the new feelings again, this time running all through me, twitching with elation. Every day, it was as if I discovered a new feeling. How many more were there to discover? I was getting things done. I was making things happen in my life. I was exploring. I was an explorer. I was ready to do it, whatever it was. I was ready to do anything. Of course, there was the problem of actually dialing the number. And, <coughs> excuse me, that's all for this week's episode. Um, I'm excited about this chapter, so I'm going to try to get the next one out to you much sooner than later. Again, thanks. This is Eric Bader, and you have been listening, as of course you know, because it says so on your iPod, to the Fort St. David's podcast. Thanks a lot. Good night.